Man, but uh, anybody in here a parent of somebody who is in the driving years, 15, 16? Uh, I'm more scared of that somehow than the fiery furnace, right? Because people, uh, people who are parents of those in the driving years tell me that that's the most anxiety-producing season of raising a child. And if you watch this video, I think you'll be able to tell why. Make a U-turn when possible. <laughs> you know, this is kind of funny, you know, because it's fiction. Uh, but this is real life, guys. I was reading an article recently uh, from the Boston Times, and it says that uh, a Massachusetts man, age 31, named Daniel Alley, was driving on Lake Road. Come on, my dude. <laughs> early in the morning, when his GPS advised him to continue heading straight over something, he said, which looked like a dock, and then through something he said that looked like a boat ramp, which wound up plunging his car into Swan Pond. By the time emergency responders arrived, all they could see of the car was his bumper. And the police asked Daniel why he kept going into the lake. He replied, I was just trying to follow the instructions. What's the most foolish thing you've ever done to be obedient? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are living in Babylon during a time of exile, and exiles have pretty much no way of making money. They're viewed as second-class citizens, as marginalized people, as people uh, who were uh, the last picked for every team. And so, uh, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, almost none of the Israelites have meaningful employment opportunities in the kingdom but these three, for some reason, were part of a select group that King Nebuchadnezzar picked as the cream of the crop, as people he wanted to develop and groom for government positions. And so he's paid for their education, he's fed them the food off of his table, and he's groomed them to be governors in the province of Israel, a province of, over provinces of Babylon. But like every leader, Nebuchadnezzar has some significant flaws, and his major one is insecurity. Nebuchadnezzar is the kind of person that when he enters a room is always wondering if he's the smartest person, always wanting people to look at him and pay attention and lean into what he's saying. And so maybe on a day of particular insecurity, he says, I'm gonna have a statue built to commemorate my own authority, to commemorate the fact that I am the best, and have everybody from the highest governor to the lowest peasant in the land bow down and affirm that, I, that Babylon, that the empire is the primary concern in their life. And Babylon is polytheistic. They have idols and statues on every street corner. Gods are a dime a dozen to them. And so if you ask the average Babylonian, they'd say something like, gods come and go, but the empire, that's what stands forever. 
this is only a problem for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because when they had nothing else, when they had no national identity, when they had no place to worship, the presence of God was all they had. And so when everybody else bows low, they're the only ones that stand tall. This is a profound act of protest. A profound, life-altering act of protest. Nebuchadnezzar is known to be a pretty insecure king, and Babylon is not the kindest of the empires. So when these people, uh, when these people stand instead of bow, what they're doing essentially is acknowledging that even though they lose their family, even though they lose their positions, even though they lose their authority, even if they lose their life and the lives of all the Jews in the kingdom, somehow it's worth it. And I wonder when I read this text, what is it that makes it worth it for them? How do you get to point, the point that when obedience can cost you not only your life, but the lives of all your people, somehow even in that moment, you think it's worth it? How do you get to that point? Not all at once. I don't know about you, but I tend to read the Bible from hero to hero. I'm all about the cataclysmic action of obedience. I'm all about seeing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane submitting to death on a cross. I'm all about uh, seeing Isaac, and Abraham and Isaac, seeing Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac. I'm all about um, Peter being willing to be hung upside down on a cross. Those moments of obedience are life-changing, cataclysmic, life-altering actions of obedience. But what I often fail to realize is that behind every act of obedience that we see in the Bible that's life-altering are 499 acts of obedience we never see that incline the posture of, their, of these people's hearts, these characters' hearts, to lean in to the person that God's calling them to be. Everybody wants to be a saint, but very few people want to do the 499 acts of obedience before the life-changing one. Do you? In your life, as you discern who God's called you to be, are there rhythms and habits and actions that help you say yes and lean into the call of God on your life? When God says yes in small moments, in quiet moments where nobody will see, do you lean into the challenging acts of obedience even when no one's around in a way that helps every act of obedience stack up into character? These three did. And because they did, God made them the wisest of the wise men in Babylon. And their colleagues hated them for it. The text says uh, that the crowd included everyone from the highest ruler to the person from the most backwoods province. Everybody from the governors to the peasants would bow down. So it's very unlikely in this scenario that Nebuchadnezzar himself could actually see these three men not bowing. But the astrologers, it says, did. The astrologers were their competitors, their colleagues, jealous of the success that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were having. They think, we're, we're ready to be rid of these foreigners that have not only taken our land, but taken our jobs. And so they go to, Shadrach, to, they, they go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three foreigners, refuse to bow, and they make it personal. The text says that they go and they say, there are some Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon who pay no attention to you, your majesty. 
They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. And if you've ever worked with somebody who's insecure, you know that that got him going. The text says that he was furious with rage and had the men brought before him. Most people, I think, would have had soldiers sent to kill him, but Nebuchadnezzar's taking student loans out on these people. He wants to give them every chance they can not to burn that cash. And so they come before him and he looks them in the eye and he says, is it true? Will you really not bow the knee? This is a moment that every one of us come to. Obedience in the West is very rarely uh, as life-threatening as it was and is in other countries. But I bet you won't leave your front door without hearing someone or some situation or some person say, bend the knee. You've been groomed for years for a promotion. But to get it and have the organization thrive, you have to overlook hundreds of sexual harassment allegations that have been brought against the boss that groomed you for that position. You wanna vote for a candidate who's gonna give you a tax cut, but to do that, you have to ignore everything that the gospel says about how we treat the stranger. You wanna vote for a candidate who speaks as the gospel does about welcoming the immigrant, but to do so, you have to look past the fact that that same person doesn't speak the way the gospel does about the unborn child. You wanna be a part of a friend group, but the price of entry is acting as if the things of God mean nothing to you. Bow down, bow down, bow down, the herald says. The things of this world are the only things that are solid. If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard that this story is pretty clear cut. The people that are faithful are the ones that always stand, and the people that bow down are the cowards without a spine. So I pictured myself in this story growing up as a person who would always stand next to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When I reread the text and see what's at stake, that not only are they at stake, but their whole family and their whole tribe and every employee that they've employed, I see myself not standing next to them so much as being the guy that bows down next to them and says, guys, get down. Think of your family. Think of the people that you employ that will be without work because of this. All for what? Some silly act of obedience? The longer you're in church, the longer you're a Christian, the more you'll notice that Christians are really good at talking ourselves out of costly acts of obedience. We are really good at finding spiritual reasons to do exactly what we wanna do. We respect people uh, in the Bible for costly acts of obedience, but if God called us to those things, we would try to talk ourselves out of them. Try talking to somebody about quitting your job uh, for the sake of going overseas on mission, and you'll hear something akin to God wants you to be happy. If we were standing next to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'd probably say something like, better to stand, better to bow and be a ruler than to stand and be an ember. Or, or bow your knee, but don't bow your heart. 
So I'll ask you again, what's the craziest thing, the most foolish thing you've ever done to be obedient? After the king learns that these three still haven't bowed, he tells the men that he's willing to create a special ceremony for them if only they're willing to admit that the primary thing that sits in the throne of their hearts is the empire. And here's how they respond. The text says that they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Usually when I've read this before, I kind of stop at that text. I don't read any further because what I think is happening here is that God is sort of playing chicken with his people. If you play chicken, you know it's a game uh, where two cars, it's really a suicide mission more than a game, two cars come closer to each other, as close as they can. Whoever swerves out of the way is chicken. God seems to do this sometimes with his people with obedience. He calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, the person he most loves in the world, and as soon as Abraham proves he's willing to do it, God says, take the knife away. I assume that this is what's happening in this text, that God is calling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be willing to sacrifice their lives no, and, uh, and cluing them into the fact that if they are willing, he'll save them. But then I realize that this is embedded in a context in which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have seen hundreds, maybe thousands, of their family, friends, and fellow members of Israel slaughtered at the hands of Babylon. And so in the next verse... They say, God is able to save us, but, verse 18, even if he does not. We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. There's something worse for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego than losing their life. What's worse than losing their life is keeping it and having sold God out. And maybe worse, having set an example of faithfulness in their family and watching their kids see them bend the knee. These people bow having no idea that God is gonna save them. And when you read it, you see that these three had a God worth burning for. If we're honest, I think some of us probably haven't had a faith worth burning for in a long time, if we ever had it at all. Some of us come to church and we hear people preach things we disagree with, sing things we used to believe, and pray for things we're fairly confident won't be answered. For some of us, church is hell enough that we come just to get our burning done up front. And if that's you, you may wanna to listen to the next verse in this passage. The text says, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps and prefects, governors and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Part of the reason 
that we don't have a God worth burning for is that we often barely have a gospel worth getting out of bed for. We've converted over time the teachings of Jesus and the teaching of the Old Testament into leadership principles, into uh, self-improvement techniques, all the while distilling the message of God into some way of becoming a better version of ourselves instead of a better version of who God's called us to be. What you need when you're in the fire isn't a self-improvement technique. It isn't 12 steps to be a better leader. What you, what you need in the fire is a God who shows up and who, even if he doesn't turn down the heat, makes sure you aren't consumed. You can hear in this passage that the good news isn't just that God can give you courage in hard times. The good news in this passage is that the power of God is greater than the power that others can bring against you, even when the furnace is at its hottest. If he's with you, you won't be consumed. Even if you die, he defeats death. But it's how he saves that's the best news. God could have done anything to rescue them from the fire. He could have kept them from being thrown in before. He could have made the fire ice. I think that would be kind of cool. It's my personal favorite. But he didn't. (laughs) What he did was show up. And because he did, these three men were saved. And not only that, after the king saves them, he promotes them to even higher positions of authority in the kingdom. But obedience doesn't always pay off like that. In their day, just like ours, There are folks who lose their jobs and their money and their influence and sometimes their lives because they do what God has called them to do. So God might deliver you and he sure is able to, but obedience might cost you everything you have. Obedience might have you move to a state or a country where you have no family or friends. Obedience might make you admit or confess or your sin, even if it costs you your reputation or your job. Obedience might make you open up your schedule so you can spend a few hours a week with people who are draining you. Obedience might have you invite someone to church when you're pretty confident they're gonna say no. Obedience might make you give up a hobby, a friendship, a habit, an amount of money, all so you can become the person that God's called you to be instead of just a better version of yourself. So let me ask you, Church, what is the act of costly obedience that's before you today? For some of you, I think God's probably been tugging on your heart about something for a long time, and you keep postponing your yes. So maybe for you, today is the day where you commit one of those 499 quiet acts of obedience nobody ever sees. Or maybe today is the 500th. Maybe today is the life-altering, public, cataclysmic act of obedience that changes the way you approach the rest of your life. Or maybe it's a quiet one that nobody ever sees, but there's only one way to find out. So what is the act of costly obedience that's right in front of you? Whatever it is, you won't be able to do it alone. I think often we focus so much on the obedience of the three men in this passage that we forget that they didn't make themselves fireproof God showed up. So the second question this morning is, how do you need God to come through in your situation? A dear friend uh, a number of years ago uh, said, what could God be so good as to do for you right now? 
And so for you this week, what could God be so good as to do? Could God be so good as to help you finally feel his presence again, even though you've come to church for years and you aren't sure if he shows up here anymore? Could God be so good as to start healing a relationship that's been broken for a long time and you have no idea how to put it together? Could God be so good as to give you courage to stand up when others are bowing low? Could God be so good as to give you the strength to confess, even if it costs you everything you have? Could God be so good as to give you strength to obey when he calls? In these next few moments, whatever it is, I'm gonna ask you to identify it and then say behind it, but even if he doesn't, I'll still bow. I'll still stand. So in these next few minutes, I'm gonna ask you to go ahead and write the, the answer to both of these questions. One, what is the costly act of obedience in front of you? And two, where do you need God to come through on your bulletin? And then keep it after the service in a place at home where you'll be able to see it.